Oh. Good morning, church. All right. Glad to see you. Name is uh, Brandon Ziski, the lead pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. Now, listen, I know some of you are like super creatures of habit. You walked in, you're like, am I in the right church? That's okay. That's good. Change is great, right? So that, it's, it's good. Like I've learned to adapt to this because my wife loves to rearrange rooms all the time. And so like there'll be sometimes I'll like come home into the living room. I'm like, I don't know where to go, right? So listen, you're not the only ones who are adjusting to this because as preachers, we have, we, I know where you sit normally, right? And, and like, and I know where people are, and now I'm like, I, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm feeling really weird. I'm like, these people are really close. <laughs> and so, anyhow. Man, I love baptisms. I love what they represent. Like, we are here because of what Jesus does. He moves people from death to life, making us into new creations. So when we get to celebrate baptisms, we are literally like rejoicing and worshiping God who performs miracles because there's no greater miracle than salvation. And so when we get to see that, church, let that be infectious to you. Don't just see baptism as a religious thing that we do. It really is a powerful symbol of the gospel, right? So I want to encourage you just to do that. And also, if you've been prompted this morning by chance in some way, some form, that maybe you should get baptized, we want to teach you as a church to be sensitive to that and to move in obedience to find out if that's the Holy Spirit or not, or if there's in, you're curious about being baptized, whatever, just go in the back corner, talk to someone, and just follow that prompting, that nudging, okay? So two quick other things before we get into the text this morning. Anytime we move into a new series, it's like the longest intro ever, and then we'll finally get into scripture. But I want to say this, and I really hope nobody applauds. That's my caveat. Um, starting tomorrow, and it's probably going to be like published sometime in the week, I'm going to start doing a podcast that's going to be like really raw, unedited. It's not going to be like fine, polished stuff. But the whole idea is to use that podcast to talk about all of the things that I have cut out of the sermon so that way I don't preach for 50 minutes. That's why I said don't, don't applaud. <laughs> So like, so the way my brain works is, it's like when I say something, my, all of a sudden it's like this drop down box of things goes, and then I want to talk about this, and I want to talk about this, and then I feel the need to talk about this. And so this allows me to have that space just to be like, listen, man, when we talked about this, there was a whole slew of things here that I w- would love for you to know. So it's just going to be a really raw, unvarnished, kind of like supplemental deeper dive into the notes and the things that were planned here. And so I want to encourage you to do that and also be like, okay. Here we go. Not going to promise you anything, though, okay? Um, I do also feel the need to talk about what's happening in the Middle East, okay? And, like, I'm not going to, like, unpack this, like, exhaustively. I just want to say something real clear and real simple. Like, regardless of how we align politically and how we see the deal and all the situations that are there, listen, friends, this is not just a political issue. This is a spiritual issue. And we as a church are not only exhorted to pray for Israel, we're exhorted to pray for all of those who are lost. 
And that includes anybody in the Middle East. So it's not just like, hey, we're just going to, you know, just pray for Israel. But like that, that is like kind of like, like pitting sides. And, and that's not the heart of God. Like there's, there's innocence being slaughtered. Like there's, there's real evil that is happening that is straight from the pit of hell. And we should be praying as a church against that. We should be praying that our, our, like, our um, heirs of salvation, you know, the Jewish people, we should be praying for them to see Jesus as Messiah. And we should be praying for those in Palestine and all the other folks that they would also see Jesus. And so we should be a church that is praying. Praying for peace, praying for justice, praying for the protection of the innocents, and praying for life change. We're going to pray for God's kingdom to come there. So before we get into the text this morning, I, I want us just to spend a moment praying. Praying for souls. Praying for people. So Lord, we, we do come to you, and I think like it would be remiss if we didn't say this, this stuff can make us feel pretty anxious. It may even cause fear. It may cause us to be scared and, and worry. And, and then it, like when we tend to get anxious and when we tend to be fearful, we tend to look at ourselves. And we forget about the beautiful gift you've given us to intercede. To stand in the gap between heaven and earth. So, Lord, we as a church, we're, we're, we're interceding for Israel. We're interceding for Palestine. We're, we're, we're interceding for all of those involved. We pray that you give wisdom to leaders to, to, to navigate complexities that are way beyond our mind. And most often, they don't even know because this is really a spiritual deal. So, Lord, we pray against the darkness would you trample out the move of the enemy? Father, would your kingdom come? Would your will be done? Lord, we know that the church is exploding in a positive way, is growing rapidly in Iran. We know that it's growing rapidly and even in the Gaza. Lord, so we pray that you would use those believers as the same way as you used believers when, during Rome when they were persecuting, that they would see Jesus in their humility. Lord, protect children. Protect the widows, the orphans, the weak. Jesus, we don't know exactly all what to say. But Lord, we ask that you would open eyes to the beauty and the power of your kingdom. Save people, rescue people from hell. Lord, we give that to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. Okay. So this fall, our focus as a church has been primarily to kind of lean into and ask the question, what does it mean to enjoy God? And we kind of launched into that by asking the question, does God actually really want us to enjoy him? Because 
that thought of enjoying God is kind of a weird or a foreign idea in church world. It almost feels a little bit like self-serving, like enjoy God, we can enjoy God. It's like, yes, this is what God wants. In fact, like as you'll see in a few weeks, like the best way for us to glorify him is to enjoy him. Because when we enjoy him, it's like everything in our life starts to follow, our hearts and everything else. Like we want to be all about him. We want to depend upon him. It's like that's the heartbeats. And so we started out by looking at the Holy Spirit again and started asking these questions. Like what is it about the Holy Spirit that is connected to this concept of enjoying God? And so we understood as we looked in scripture that the Holy Spirit is extremely passionate about helping people to meet, know, and follow Jesus. And one aspect that the Holy Spirit is very passionate about is helping us to experience and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding. And it's rooted in that prayer, or or, or not that prayer, but that teaching when Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father has loved me, and we as good Bible students should go, stop. How does the Father love Jesus? Answer that question. Because what follows next is Jesus saying, that's how I love you. And when you actually like grasp that, you can't even put a word to that. You're like, what love is this? Right? And so that starts to move into our hearts. We start to understand, like, when Jesus says, like, hey, remain in my love or abide in my love, live in my love. The only way we can ever do that is for the Holy Spirit to take up residence in our life. And the only way for that to happen is for us to say yes to the grace of God through his sacrifice, his resurrection. So we move from death to life. The old creation is gone. And now we're a new creation with the Holy Spirit dwelling within interceding, prompting, leading for us to understand the love of Christ. And when we do, that overflows into joy, which is exactly what Jesus was saying. It's like, I'm telling you all of these things. Why? Because I want my joy to be made perfect or complete in your life. God wants you to have his joy in fullness. Awesome. And that joy leads to a life that resembles the kingdom of God and it produces fruit. We use the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us and we talked about that through the form of spiritual gifts. And as we do that, the presence of God is made manifest. So we in the church, we rejoice and praise God and then those on the outside see God in action within the church. And we also saw in a beautiful poetic picture that wherever the river of God goes, there's life, there's abundance, there's thriving, there's flourishing, there's miracles, there's power, which is a tangible experience and knowing of the grace of God. So with all of that in mind, we're starting this series that's going to be titled More Than Enough. And this is a beautiful idea because we need to really answer this question and not just sing about it. We need to really go, is he really more than enough? All of you, I forgot the lyric, is more than enough than all I need. Thank you, Sam. He is more than enough than all I can desire. He's more because he's infinitely overflowing with goodness and grace because that's just who he is. So, This series is going to be looking at something that we in the church would typically not equate with enjoying God. 
which is a travesty. This series is going to be looking at a topic that, like, honestly, we struggle with and, and we wrestle with it because we know what we're talking about is true. And in the spirit inside of us goes, yes, this is true. I want to do this. But then we find ourselves going, actually, no, let's not talk about it. I don't want to address it. No, but I do. No, but I don't. Yes, it's true. I have every intent to do this. Yeah, but no, not right now. And we, so we find ourselves in this wrestling match because the fact is we don't believe that it actually helps us to enjoy God. So enough being vague with this series. Here's how we're going to start. Three questions. And I want you to answer these questions. Write it down. Uh, writing can take the form of your phone, I suppose. I don't know. Grab a paper. Use your neighbor's hand. Just write it, it down. Okay? I want you to answer these three questions. Question one, what was one of the primary markers within the faith community before, during, and after revival moments breaking out? One of, okay, it's not the, what is one of the primary markers within the faith community that primarily those on the outside would tangibly see before, during, and after movements of God, okay? In fact, little hint, throw it there, it's not on there, but that's okay. This marker caught the attention of non-Christian historians, leaders, and influencers during the first 300 years. They write about it a lot. Question two. What aspect of church or the worship service do we not often look forward to? If you say the whole thing. <laughs> Right? What aspect of church or the worship service do we not often look forward to? Third question. What causes or what is one significant cause for a lack of joy, a lack of love, and a lack of power within the church and to be experienced within the church? Here's a clue. I'm looking for the same answer. In all three questions. And if you need additional clues, let's look at a few passages. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And here's what he said. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Grace is coming. The old covenant is going away. God's reign, God's rule, God's presence. I am God in the flesh. The kingdom of God is the power of God pushing back the darkness. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave, there's a clue, his one and only son. Though ever please shall not perish but have eternal life. How are we doing? What's your answer? Did any of you say, before I ridiculously said the word gave, say generosity or giving? Does that shock you? Does that surprise you a little bit? Like, ah, no, 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 Brandon. In fact, you may be even like a little skeptical. You might be going, oh, great bait and switch. Way to go. Real shrewd. Or you're like, you know, maybe you invited a friend and they haven't been to church for a while. You're like the giving dog. <laughs> or you're like, I knew it. All they want is your money. I knew it. 
Like, like, that, those objections are the very reason why we need to lean in, okay? Let me tell you something right out of the gate. Church history in the story of the people of God consistently, consistently show us that a giving church, a generous church is a dominant attribute that surfaces when the kingdom of God is pushing back the darkness, always. When the kingdom of God is moving forward and when revival breaks out and the joy of the Lord and the love of God is being experienced and the spirit is moving in power, generosity is one of the key hallmarks. Why? That is the question. We have to ask this question, why? We need to answer it because we can't just simply go, ah, giving, mad, don't like it. Why? This is so important for us. This question has to be answered in order for, to understand the kingdom of God and to allow our perspective and our paradigms on money and finances to change for too long. Friends, for too long the church has tolerated and allowed the wrong perspective of giving to live within the church and the people of God. In fact, I have grown more and more and more convinced over the years of pastoring that one of Satan's subversive strategies is to get the people of God to think of giving with contempt. Why? This is so important. I mean, if you want to lean into Jesus and, and, and you take Jesus serious and you want to experience him and understand him more and you want to be a disciple that goes after him, like if you really are a new creation and you want your life to live in consistency or congruence with your new creation, man, you need to listen in. If you really desire joy and freedom, you have to listen in. You've got to lean in. Like if you want to be more selfless, which I hope all of us say yes, like this is important. And if you really do want to see God begin to move in power in your life and in the church, like this is important. And if you truly do want peace or need peace in your finances, because listen, right now in our economy, this is in your face constantly. Economy, kind of, you know, recession, not this. Are they going to raise the rates? All these kind of stuff. And we start to panic. People's retirements are going down. The job market is this. And it's just like, if you want peace, this is important. If you want to know the heart of God and his desire for you, you need to take this to heart. Look at this. Luke 6, verse 38. Jesus says, give. Give. And it will be given to you. Now, I know right there, you're like, health and wealth. Yes. Heresy. The fact that charlatans and false guides, false prophets false teachers abuse this passage to manipulate a kingdom principle for their own gain does not make the truth of God irrelevant. It's true. Give, and it will be given to you. Not always financial, but yes, it it can be financial because Jesus says it later on in Matthew, like, hey, all you who give much in this world will also receive more in this age. But not always. It's not always material. There's so many ways. Give, and it'll be given to you. That's a promise. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it'll be used to you. 
So you go, what, is, what kind of life do I want? What kind of church do we want? Well, we see in Scripture the unique connection to giving. And this is just one example. Is he really, really more than enough? Now the passage we're going to look at is Malachi chapter 3. Some people like to say Malachi. Some of you are like, that was me. Don't admit it. Malachi chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 6 through 12. And my desire this morning is, is to simply to show you the why. The why behind generosity. The why that movements of God are connected to when God's people give. We have to see this connection. Next week and the week to follow, we're going to be unpacking a little bit more of the how and the what and the blessings and all the things that are connected to this. But I want us to start here with the why. And I believe that this passage is, again, so often misused to freak people out into giving. But there's something so much deeper in this passage than we realize, okay? Chapter 3, verse 6 through 12. Because I, the Lord, have not changed. You, descendants of Jacob, have not been destroyed. Since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statues, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I'm going to return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Yet you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. This letter comes 100 years roughly after Israel has been in exile in Babylon for 70 years. They went there because God said, listen, if you're going to disobey me, you're going to be in exile. So they did. And God provided a gracious way to, for them to return to Jerusalem, which is the fulfillment of what he promised would happen. And so they came. They started. There was great anticipation and joy. And they started the rebuilding temple project. But then something started to change again. Like when external threats started to come on their door, other people or economic or what have you, they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. And they started to back off a little bit. And then they started to say at that time, like, yeah, we better take care of ourselves first. And once we get ourselves together, like when we build our homes and we plant our gardens, then we'll come back to this. And God's like, listen, you've drifted again. Like all of Malachi is like saying, you've tainted the worship system again. Like you're, you're just doing the status quo thing. Like you, and you're hoarding your money. Like you're not even like... You're like, sure, you're like giving to me, but it's like, you're just like, nope, I got to build up my own wealth. I got to do this. I got to protect. I got to have all these things for myself. And we're going to discover that's the heart. They're worshiping idols and trying to worship God all at the same time. And what we see in verse six is the beautiful, everlasting mercy and grace and goodness of God saying, hey, I do not change I, in fact, the word, I love the word, I haven't changed. There's sort of an implication there, kind of like, you did. I haven't. My promises remain. Like, I haven't changed. What I said that I would do with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm still going to do. In fact, I haven't changed since the creation of all things. I do not change. And friends, that's great news and yet sobering news. It's great news because we see that God's love never runs out. His goodness is chasing after me. 
That's why I love that song. That's exactly what this is. God's chasing after them. They're not, they don't care. In fact, they think they're fine. God's love doesn't change. My word is as true today as it ever was. Once I say it, it is firm. It is etched in all eternity. Hebrews says that I am the same today, tomorrow, and forever. He doesn't change. But yet the same thing goes with his love, mercy, and goodness. It's the same with his justice and wrath and discipline. And God won't be mocked. You will reap what you sow. And he says, hey, listen, if you disobey, you're, you're going to be put into discipline. And that looked in the form of exile. But also, even right now, in this present context, you're being disciplined, which we will see in a little bit. In fact, we're going to see it right now. Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord of Armies says this, same context, same time period. The time has not come. The Lord of Armies says, as these people say, the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Similar to us maybe saying like, it's just not the right time for me to give yet because I got a X, Y, and Z. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins and he's talking about his temple? Now the Lord of the army says this, think carefully about your ways. Assess your life soberly, realistically. Look around you. Look inside of you. Look ex like externally. You've planted much, but you harvested little. You eat, but never have enough and be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, you never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts its wages in the bag with a hole in it. Ever feel that way? Like you just feel like you can never get ahead. You're like, yes, I'm out of debt. Oh, crap, the AC broke. Not that that has happened here. Right, like, it's like you move forward and it goes out this way and you're constantly this and this and this and this. He's like, listen, I'm disciplining you right now. And it's because of my grace. I don't change. Return to me and I'll return to you. And I love what God says. And yet you ask, well, how can we return? And the posture of this is like they're kind of confused because they're like, wait, wait, we returned. We came from Babylon to Jerusalem. Like, we're doing the stuff. Uh, like, we're still worshiping. Yeah, while well, you've neglected the original command to rebuild the temple. Sure, you're worshiping in the ruins and it's neglected. And you're building your own homes. Great, got it. They're defensive. Wait, wait, wait. How, have we, how, how can we return? A little, little bit of a defensive posture right there. But yet, at the same time, there's curiosity. Because they're like, whoa. Well, maybe. They don't believe they really left. They think everything's good. They're not making the connection between their present circumstance to their spiritual reality, but something is off. So, before we read on, and some of you know this passage, and some of you may have read on already, how do they return? What would your answer be? If God says, return to me, and I'll return to you, well, how shall we return? God's going to answer that question. And well, what do you think his answer is? If you were to guess without knowing the passage or without even knowing, just humor me, without even knowing the series. Oh, I just got to be at church more. I got to be a better person. I got to serve more. I got to do this more. I got to do this more. But watch, watch. Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Well, how do we rob you, you ask? Well, 
by not making payments of the tenth or tithing or in the contributions or offerings. You are suffering under a curse, and yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Oof, I got to unpack this because this is the verse where people manipulate this to scare the crap out of people. Well, if you ain't giving a tenth, you're under a curse. Maybe <laughs> discipline, but this, this, we got to be careful here. But yet, I, I think it's important for us to just say the reality is that if if our if we don't connect ourselves or give a tenth, blessings are withheld. But here, here's the thing: like, will a man rob God? Like, that's a crazy question. Like, it's not a normal thing for people to rob their God. Like, it's pretty audacious and very bold and kind of arrogant to try to rob God. And he's just like, and yet you are. It's like, will a man rob God? Of course not, but you're doing it. Well, how? Well, how are we doing it? You can just feel the defensive posture. And he says, you're robbing me by your tithes and your offerings. Sit on that. What does he mean? What does he mean? Before I answer, let me be clear on what a tithe is and what it's not. In the biblical sense, in this story, a tithe is 10% of whatever means, income, whatever, gift you receive. It's 10%. It's not just a contribution. And this is where I think, like, the word love, like, love gets muddled up a lot because we use it so frequently. I, I love Jesus. I love pizza. Are they the same? No. Like, tithe. Like, I tithe. And sometimes when we say that, we, we're making ourselves feel a little better, but what we're really tithing is maybe $10 a week. Right? And so we got to wrestle with that a little bit. So it's like, I think we've allowed that and we convinced ourselves that a tithe is just another way of saying offering. But a tithe really, in the true sense of the word, is a tenth. And this is hard. I mean, it's so easy to tithe. Like I remember, it was so easy to tithe when I didn't have as much responsibility in my life. Right? Especially when I became a Christian in college, it was awesome to tithe. I didn't have a lot of money. It was great. And it was, I was like so eager just to be generous with whatever I had because it was exciting to follow Jesus. There wasn't going to be a lot of fallback if I screwed something up. And it was just like, man, I can't wait to see what God does. This. I can't wait to see how God's going to provide for this and this and this. And then I moved into, you know, a career. In my first five years of ministry, I had to raise financial support. And then next thing you know, I found the temptation to rob God, show up. And it looked like this. Hmm. If I don't tithe, then God won't raise my support. And so I started to have fear and anxiety. So instead of giving cheerfully and eagerly, I started to feel like I was paying God the mafia boss. Well, I got to pay him off in order to make my fundraising goals. Once I did it, good. 
And then I got married in that same season, right? And new desires and wants started to emerge and responsibilities and bills started to come up and, and debts started to collect early on. And, and then there was a little season where we started out by constantly giving 10%, giving 10%. Not necessarily the right motive, but we did. But then we backed off because we were having trouble struggling with some debt. And we were like... I need to take care of this. And when I got this taken care of, then we will get better. We will take care of this. But here's the reality. This never got better. And God pursued me and wooed me back to his heart. And we started to tithe again. Then we had kids. (laughs) Made more money, new job, new responsibilities. It's so tempting, so tempting to want to rob God. You ever ever have this thought in the back of your head? I know you do, so don't lie. It's it's a silent voice. It might not even be you. You know what you could do with that 10%? Just take 1% off. Nine is fine. Eight is fine. You know what you could do with that? You see that truck? You could do it. And you're like, oh, man, I could. And you find yourself wrestling with it. So here's the question. If God owns everything, and he does, everything you earn, everything you have is 100% his, period. Why then is he only asking for 10%? And why is he even asking for 10%? Is it really about money? Is it really? I mean, like, are they robbing God of 10% of everything he owns? What's the issue? They're robbing God of their heart. That's the real issue. You want to know where I came from? What did he say at first? Return. Return. It's relationship. And as you return, I'll return to you. Promise. Well, how? You're withholding your heart. And giving, friends, I'm telling you right now, giving is one of the most concrete, tangible expressions of our love, our gratitude, and our trust to the Lord. Giving will show us if we understand grace. Because the nature of grace is a life of giving, not a life of getting. And when we push back on this, That is a clear indicator you're asking the same questions that's being asked of God here. Well, how should we return? Well, how am I robbing you? We are robbing God of our hearts. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 6, where your heart is, that's your treasure. You can't serve two masters. It's one or the other. And And God knows that the other doesn't lead to a place of blessing and joy and peace. And there's one that allows us to enjoy the most beautiful and delightful and majestic God ever. God so loved the world that he gave. Money is the top competitor of your heart. It is. And God knows that. It's a concrete expression. 
I have grown to be so convinced in my own life and through counseling and talking through other people that if we aren't giving 10%, hear me, or at least moving towards it, because grace abounds, we are most likely withholding our hearts. Even if we have the intention to tithe. Even if we agree, tithing is right. Because here's the deal. If we can't trust God with a little thing like money, how can you trust him with a bigger thing like your heart? Jesus taught it this way in a parable. Luke 16, 10 through 13. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whosoever unrighteous is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly love, who will trust you with what is genuine or really in the Greek says true riches or the riches of heaven? Oftentimes, we read this or it's taught and we start thinking, what is the little? Like being faithful in the little. Like what, what is that? We typically say it's a little amount of money. But that is not what Jesus is saying. The little is money. If he can't trust you with the little money, friends, yes, Believe it, money is little in the eyes of God. <laughs> if he can't trust you with a little, how can he trust you with true riches, the blessings of heaven? Friends, this is not my opinion. Scriptures teach us that if we do not move towards generosity, we miss out on the blessings that come from heaven that money could never buy. And those blessings are the very thing you want and crave. And it's all wrapped up in knowing Jesus. Malachi 3.10. Let's see how this connects. Talks about robbing him. And he moves into this, bring the full tenth into the storehouse, which is essentially the temple. Or we can make a connection to the New Testament and say it's the church, which we'll talk about next week. So that their food may be in my house. Test me in this. Not good to test the Lord in anything else. But he says, test me here. I want to encourage you to be a good Bible student. And when you read something like that, you go, why? Why? Why is God saying, test me in this, with money, in this issue? Says the Lord of armies, see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven. Jesus said, true riches. So don't tell me that generosity and giving this way in the 10th and all this kind of stuff is just Old Testament. It's not. God doesn't change. Jesus made the same connection. See, test me. Come on, test me. Whatever your circumstance is right now, test me and see if I will not. He's daring you. <laughs> like, I love that. And see if I will not open up the floodgates of heaven. Put me to the test. Why is he saying this? Because he knows how we feel about money. (laughs) 
He knows what money can do to us. He knows the hold that it has on us. He knows that it causes probably the greatest anxiety in your life. He knows that we think it's all ours and we've earned it by our own efforts and our own scheming and our own perseverance. It's all mine, but it's actually graced to you. He knows that we often have a hard time even holding on to money. Test me and see what I'll do. See if I will not open up the window of heaven and just pour out blessing on you. And that blessing, we're going to talk again next week, looks like many different things. And yes, I want to be clear. Sometimes that blessing is financial. Don't allow that truth to be hijacked by heresy. It can be, but it's so much more, so much more. And we see this, like, look at verse 12, because here's, here's like, he's like, listen, when you do this, here's what will be seen. Then all of the nations will consider you fortunate, will see the blessing of God on you, the favor on you, and they will say, this is a delightful land. Sounds like enjoyment says the Lord. And if you don't believe me that this is not just an Old Testament thing, that generosity is connected to moves of God, go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. I can pull out a few of these. Acts 2, if we keep reading, devote themselves to all of these types of things, keep going, please. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Verse 44, now that all the believers were together, had all things in common, they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Verse 46, every day they devote themselves, meeting together, breaking bread, ate with joyful and sincere hearts. Verse 47, praising God, enjoying the favor of all people. And every day the Lord was adding to their number. Acts 4. Let's keep looking at this. You can, you can keep seeing this theme. Acts chapter 4. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart, one mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. They were being generous going into this, for there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, which again is like saying they gave it to the church. They entrusted it to the leadership who were under submission to the Lord, and they distributed to each person as had need. Man, we can keep going on. Second Corinthians chapter 8, the poorest church that we know of then, they gave in great grace out of an overflow of experiencing grace. They were completely destitute of financial gain under extreme oppression of the Roman tyranny and they were excited to give. They were even begging the apostle Paul, can we give more? And you're like, you nuts? But that's what grace does. Grace does not consider standards. 
the nature of grace is one of abundance and overflowing. It's a life of giving. So when we talk about tithing, the Old Testament had a standard, and that was good to keep them there. But the law was just a tutor until Jesus came. Now, on side of the cross, we understand the grace and the goodness, the fullness of everything that God had. And grace redefines everything. In fact, the New Testament increases the standard of the Old Testament. So don't tell me that giving is an Old Testament thing and not New Testament because we're free and we're under grace. That'd be like me saying to my wife, babe, I am not under the law to tell you every day that I love you because I'm free. And because of my freedom and not being under the law, I'm going to tell you once a month, I love you. John Piper talks about this logic this way. (laughs) We live in the New Testament era. We have seen the love of God at Calvary. We have seen the power of God for us at Easter morning. We have filled with the Holy Spirit of grace and sonship. We are secure and nothing can separate us from the love of God. We have the promises of the Almighty that he will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we may be content to give less than the Old Testament saints. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Yeah, the New Testament doesn't command a specific amount. And there's a reason for it. Grace. Grace says no limits. Grace says be liberal with. Because it wants the heart. The heart. The heart. What are you robbing God of? It's not your money ultimately, but money is the truest reflection of your heart. And why does the church oftentimes seem like there's no joy, no love or power? We have to ask, are we generous? There are so many reasons why I've heard people not give or tithe. They say, I tithe with my time. Great, but that does not make you exempt from tithing. In fact, when they say that, I'm always like, okay, really? You know how many hours you have in a week? Tithe, 10%. Are you serving 10% of all of those hours? You get where I'm going. They don't think they can afford it. Or they're not ready. They've got too much debt. Well, who, can, who has a better plan for your finances, you or the Lord? right? We spend more than we make. We're in debt and we feel like we can't because of the debt and our greed. We agree with principle, but we wait till later. That's like standing at the Mississippi River and saying, I will cross when all the water passes by. (laughs) And a very common one that I have to call out. You don't agree with church leadership. Let me say a few clear Disagreeing or, or disagreement with leadership is not a valid reason to rob God. You ain't robbing us. In fact, disagreeing is, is an opportunity for reconciliation. But if you've lost the confidence in your leadership, listen, find a church 
where you can have confidence in the leaders and be a joyful giver because there's so much at stake in your life if you don't give. We aren't building the brand of Austin Oaks Church. We are building the kingdom of God. Please find a church you can trust the leadership in. But even so, we are underneath the auspices of God. And don't assume that you know all the ins and outs and the whys and all the stuff of every decision that is being made. Give the benefit of the doubt that Jesus is leading his church. And so you're actually then thinking, I am giving to a person or to a church. But you're not. You're giving to God. So for you to say that at the end of the day is just an excuse for you to not give. Just be careful. So, application. See, I told you. Like, I got to get used to cutting off to do the podcast thing. I, I, I'm getting there. First day, grace, please. Thank you. How do we do this? How do we do this? Practical stuff. I'm going to unpack this more next week. Choose to be a giver by faith. You don't just fall into giving. You, you just don't accidentally do it. You have to choose to do it. And out of that, you start asking, what is it that I want in my life and what do I want in the life of our church? And if you want joy and peace and love and power, like, well, choose then to be generous. Honor the Lord first. First, first, first of every means of prosperity that comes in, gift, tax return, income. I do not care first. Honor, it's the word honor. Honor the Lord first. Well, gross or the net. Can I just say, it doesn't matter. Okay, I have an opinion, but usually that question, a lot of times, again, it's another guise of not doing it. Just Start, 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 start. Man, Texas, crazy. Some of us pay 10, over 10% of our income to property tax. The government gets way more money than the church. Who has done more for you? Just, just saying. Okay, choose to be a progressive giver. Generosity is a life of liberality, like just giving, looking to be more generous than the previous day. So here's what I want to say. Some of you are at each spot here, and the joy of following Jesus and the joy of experiencing grace is the desire to take that next step. So here's what I want to say. If you are giving nothing, give something. Just start. Just start. Just start. And if you have been giving something, make it planned instead of just haphazard. Whenever. Honor the Lord first. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 16, set aside a day. And then if you've been doing that for a while, friends, go from plan to percentage or progressive or in proportion to. And then part of that is, is going, okay, I'm tithing, great. Now the offering, the offering, offerings are overflowing expressions of I can't wait. So here's what I want to say. 
if you're not giving 10% to the church, and I'm going to explain that later. In fact, let me just phrase, take that up. If you're not giving 10% of your income, here's what I want to challenge you with. Test him. Test him for six months. Give 10%. That's not me. He's like, see if I won't do it. Test him. Six months is too much, do three. One month is not enough. You're like, I can handle one. Three is kind of like, six, ouch. And you fact, you may start not doing it, not enjoy. <laughs> You're like, oh, this is a stupid thing. I know I should do it. You just do it. Do it. Test him. Test him. See what will happen. And you'll start to discover these blessings show up in so many different ways. That you're like, this is great. This is great. It has nothing to do with money, friends. Money is just the sign of generosity. So I'm asking you, church, imagine with me what would happen if AOC, Austin Oaks Church, was a generous church. What do you think could happen? The window of heaven will open and blessings will pour out in abundance. And you know what? And we will fall more in love with Jesus, experience more joy. We will enjoy God. We will see the power of the Holy Spirit move because we're going to be simply all about him. And then people are going to see him, and then they're going to want to meet, know, and follow Jesus. So here's the conclusion. Even though I gave those practical things about giving, here's what I want you to pray with. Are you robbing God this morning of your heart? Are you robbing him from your heart. Lord, I pray that you would take your word, seal it. Lord, I pray for those in this room who are really maybe in serious bondage when it comes to finances and wealth. And that might not just be like they're in debt over their head. It may be crippled with anxiety and constant worry and, or maybe it's greed or discontentment and all of these things that really just drive us away from you. Lord, if there's bondage to that, God, I ask that through your spirit, you would break that now through the power of the spirit. Lord, may we be a church that is to be found, to be trustworthy with the little. Help us to be faithful with money because God, we desire those true riches. We, we desire to know you more. We, we want to consider everything a loss for the sake of knowing you. We want to be simply about you. And we, we do, like our spirits inside of us do want the world to see you and to be saved and to build your kingdom and push back the darkness, Lord, which you cultivate a generous heart inside of us. But God, help us to look to you, who is the embodiment of grace and generosity. You are love. You are joy. You create. Because creating or love creates and love gives. And so that you created 
created the world, for God so loved the world, you created the world, that when the world was broken, or the world is broken and we rebelled against you, you gave your son the greatest gift ever. And you say in your word, would he not also give us all things? Forgive us for allowing money to have more influence in our life at time than the Holy Spirit. Take our hearts, Lord. In Christ's name.